study of God's word. You know, as Kathy Kopp told us last week, our study this year is going to be on prayer, and we're going to be learning how to pray under various circumstances. And I just want to say tonight that um, you may hear things repeated tonight that you heard last week. And I just want to assure you, doesn't mean that Kathy copied my notes. Um, and I didn't copy hers either. Um, each teacher does her own study, depending upon the Holy Spirit, to lead us and guide us uh, in sharing what he would have us to share. But I've learned over the years that sometimes God allows things to be repeated uh, in order to draw our attention to a particular uh, teaching or fact or scripture or to emphasize that thought. So I just wanted to clarify that tonight because I will be repeating a few things that Kathy mentioned last week. You know, we each uh, need to learn the various ways of prayer because prayer is central to our lives as Christians. Prayer is not an obligation that we must perform, but rather it's a wonderful privilege that we've been given. Prayer is not something that we do when all else fails. You know, oh, I tried this, I tried that. Well, I guess I'll pray. No, you know, it's one of the most powerful weapons that we possess, spiritual weapons. Prayer is not just a means to contact a personal genie when we want or need something, you know, but rather prayer is the door through which we enter in in order to tap into the rich resources of our mighty God. But unfortunately, perhaps too many of us um, may have an ineffective or weak or maybe even non-existent prayer life, perhaps because we're too busy doing other things, perhaps because we feel that we're not good enough for God to care enough to hear our prayer, or perhaps because we think that quick prayers shot up during the day is sufficient. Pastor Chuck, in his book, Prayer, Our Glorious Privilege, says, Prayer opens the door for God to do a glorious work in your life and in the life of others. A dynamic prayer life softens hearts, moves mountains, and brings you into an entirely new and deepened relationship with God. And so I want to encourage you tonight, if your prayer life is ineffective or weak or non-existent, I would encourage you to purpose in your heart to begin anew, to follow the instructions given by Jesus in our study tonight, and watch your relationship with the Lord grow stronger and closer. Watch your faith be strengthened. Watch your confidence in the Lord become more secure. You know, we need to be strong women of prayer for the sake of our families for the sake of our church, for the sake of our world, and most especially for the sake of our own personal walk with the Lord. So before we get into our study, let's pray. Father God, we just come before you, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name. And Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to sit at your feet, Lord, and to drink in all that you have for us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to just lay aside the concerns of the day, and help us to be um, 
fully focused on you and have our ears open, our hearts open, ready to receive the word that you have for us. And so we ask that you bless this time, Lord, that you would take or add to my notes as you see fit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight our study is going to cover Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 to 15. And it's important to note that uh, chapter 6 is part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which he gave to his disciples. And in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus teaches his disciples about many important things. But in tonight's study, he's going to teach his disciples about prayer. And Jesus is going to teach about prayer from four perspectives. First, he will address the motive for prayer. Second, he will address the manner of prayer. Third, he will address the model for prayer. And finally, Jesus will address the mandate of forgiveness. And I've got a lot to cover, so I'm sorry if I'm speaking a little too fast. So just hang on. So let's first look at verse 5, in which Jesus addresses the motive for prayer. Verse 5, Jesus says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. So here Jesus is saying that we need to examine our motive for praying, especially when we um, participate in public prayer. You know, we need to examine whether we're praying to truly communicate with God or are we praying self-righteously in order to be seen by people or in order to impress people with how spiritual we are or in order to call attention to ourselves. You know, this is how the Pharisees prayed. And Jesus said they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets that they may be seen by men. The Jews, and especially the Pharisees, um, were caught up in the formalism or ritualism of prayer. You know, God had told the Israelites in Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9, to keep the words of the Shema in their heart. And the Shema was a prayer which said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Now, the Jews were instructed to teach these words to their children, to talk of them when they sit in their houses or as they walked along the ways or when they lied down when they went to bed or when they got up in the morning. They were to bind them on their hands and they were to allow them to be frontlets between their eyes. They were to write them on the doorposts of their houses and on their gates And all this was done so that they wouldn't forget the Lord who brought them out of Egypt, out of that house of bondage. God wanted them to remember that it was he who rescued them from their enemies. It was he who went before them to guide them and protect them. It was he who would provide for their needs and sustain them. And so the Jews prayed the Shema twice a day at 9 o'clock in the morning and 9 o'clock at night. And they also prayed uh, prayers called the uh, Shimonoff, which included 18 other prayers. And they said these prayers three times a day. But in doing these acts of prayers, the Pharisees began to be self-righteous. 
and they began to be uh, to love being seen by men. The motive for their praying was no longer remembering the Lord in gratitude and worship, but it was to attract attention to themselves, to have people see how spiritual they were. And this reminded me of the parable that Jesus gave to his disciples in Luke 18, verses 11 to 14. And I'm sure you're familiar with this parable of the two men who went to the temple to pray. And one was a Pharisee and one was a tax collector. And Jesus said that the Pharisee prayed, saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. You know, notice that as he was praying, the Pharisee was being proud and arrogant. He considered himself better than others. He was also praying while he was being judgmental. You know, haven't even he noticed that the tax collector was present. And he judged him so sarcastically and demeaningly. And we need to ask ourselves, when I come to church, am I quick to notice critically what other people are wearing or how they appear rather than just being happy to see them? Do I consider myself to be better than others present? Do I think that my personal conversation Or answering a text is more important than participating in worship. You know, we need to be careful that we don't become self-righteous like the Pharisees were. Then in the parable, the Pharisee began again to be prideful by telling God, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And I read this and all I could think of was I, 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 you know. But we need to remember two things. First, our salvation is not based on our works. It's not based on our good deeds. It's a free gift given to us by God. All we have to do is accept it prayerfully by faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. You know, we do not enter heaven by our good works, but by believing in the finished and redemptive work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Second, we must remember that God is not impressed with what we do, but he is concerned with the motives for our actions. In Matthew 5:16, Jesus told his disciples, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works And glorify your Father in heaven. You know, as followers of Jesus, we're to show the love of Jesus to others through good works, but not to receive the applause from people or a pat on the back, you know, but that they may glorify our Father who's in heaven for his goodness and his kindness towards us. All that we do and say should be done in a spirit of humility not arrogance, and with the love of Jesus for others, not seeking to gain recognition or thanks for the things that we do. Going back to the parable, Jesus says that the tax collector uh, was standing afar off, would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. 
For everyone who exalts himself will be abased, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So notice that the tax collector didn't exalt himself, but he recognized, he was humble enough to recognize that he was a sinner before the Lord. And he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. He didn't criticize the Pharisee nor anybody else present. He didn't boast of his accomplishments. He just humbly asked God for mercy. And Jesus said that he went to his home justified, forgiven, but not the Pharisee. And so we need to be careful, especially when we are praying in public. We need to examine how we're praying. You know, for example, when we pray aloud, does our voice change in order to become louder, in order to uh, give off perhaps the impression of holiness? Do we pray in such a way that is different from the way we normally talk? Or do we take on a certain posture? You know, do we pray long, drawn-out prayers, not giving consideration to other people who may want to pray as well? You know, ladies, our flesh loves to make others think that we are righteous and very spiritual. So we need to periodically examine our motives for the way we pray, making sure that we're not seeking to draw attention to ourselves. And if we do pray to draw attention to ourselves, then Jesus said that the applause or the attention that we receive, that's our reward. That's all we're going to get. So we need to be careful because like Kathy said last week, we can do a right thing with a wrong motive and completely nullify what we have done. So how are we to pray? Well, Let's look at the second part of our study to see how Jesus addresses the manner of prayer in verses 6 to 8. First of all, in verse 6, Jesus said to his disciples, But you, when you pray, go into your room, and when you have shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you openly. Notice, first of all, that Jesus tells us that when we pray, we're to go into our room and shut the door. You know, it's important to have a place where we are seen by no one but God. A place away from interruptions and distractions so that we can really focus our attention on the Lord and, and how we are, are praying to him. To be able to speak freely to him about our concerns and our needs and just everything. And then it's important that we listen for him to speak to us. You know, maybe he'll bring a, a scripture passage to our remembrance. Maybe as we use scripture in our prayer time, something will stand out to us and will minister to us. And it's interesting to note that the word room here in the Greek refers to a storeroom where treasures are kept. When we go to God in prayer, there are treasures waiting for us in our prayer room. Treasures of wisdom, understanding, discernment, strength, comfort, peace, forgiveness, love, and so much more. You know, I know that for some of us, trying to find a quiet place to pray is somewhat difficult, especially if you have small children at home. But it's important that we make a time of prayer and find a place to pray. You know, perhaps it means that um, we pray when the kids take a nap. 
or maybe we stay up a little later after everyone's gone to bed, or maybe get up a little earlier before everyone gets up. You know, prayer is so worth making whatever sacrifice is necessary in order to pray. Jesus in the gospel um, made a uh, prayer a priority, and he is said to often go to a solitary place to pray. For example, Mark one thirty five says, Now in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Luke 5.16 says of Jesus, So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness, and there he prayed. And the scriptures tell us of uh, other people who prayed privately. Kathy last week mentioned uh, Daniel, who um, Daniel 6.10 says, And in his upper room, with his windows open towards Jerusalem, he knelt down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God, as was his custom since early days. So it's important for us to have that place of prayer. And let me just add here that for those of you who may be uh, new believers or new to praying, uh, there is no specific method or posture for prayer that is more effective than another. You know, if, um, of course, we want to be respectful when we come before the Lord, but you can pray aloud, you can pray silently, you can pray while you're kneeling, standing, sitting, lying down on your back, or on your face before the Lord, or even while you're working or driving. You know, you can lift your eyes to heaven to pray, or you can close your eyes and bow your head. You can pray in any position, at any time, in any place. And in the Bible, you will find many different people praying in different uh, positions. You see, the position of our body doesn't matter. It's the position of our heart that matters. The Lord told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16:7, "For the Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart." Secondly, Jesus tells us that we are to pray to our Father who is in the secret place. When we accept Jesus into our hearts and we make him Lord of our lives, and we recognize him as our Messiah, we enter into a personal relationship with God, and we can now refer to Yahweh as Father. And it's interesting to note here that the Jews did not have an individual and personal relationship with the Lord. They had a relationship with him as a nation. John 1, verses 11 to 13 says of Jesus, He came to his own, referring to the Jews, and his own did not receive him. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Paul also, in both Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.6, says that because we are sons and daughters of God, we can refer to God as Abba, which in Hebrew means Daddy. So as followers of Jesus Christ, uh, we're now children of God. And we pray to our Father, who's in the secret place, which is heaven. Next, in verses 7 and 8, Jesus continues his instructions by saying, But when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do, 
for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask him. So, first of all, Jesus says that when we pray, we are not to use vain repetitions. And David Goodsig, who's a uh, Calvary Chapel pastor, says in his commentary on these verses that a vain repetition refers to any and all prayer, which is mostly words and no meaning, all lips and no mind or heart. A vain repetition is a babbling of words, you know, without a sincere heart, without thinking about what you're really saying. You know, sometimes memorized prayers or mantras can become vain repetitions when they're said without any thought or um, reflection on what you're proclaiming. I know in, in my life at times, you know, I've said, you know, different prayers just to get them done. And I, it, and I don't think about what I'm saying, you know, and that's a vain repetition. When you repeat something over and over again, it can become meaningless and just a series of sounds. But our prayer is supposed to be spontaneous. It's supposed to be a personal heart-to-heart conversation with the true and living God. You know, it's a time in which we can talk to him as we would talk to a close friend or perhaps a parent. We can praise him and thank him for all that he does for us on a daily basis. And we can pour out our heart to him uh, and tell him about all our concerns and our needs. And we need to remember that there is nothing that is too insignificant or too small to talk to the Lord about. And the opposite is also true. There is nothing too difficult for him at all. I don't know if you remember, but he told Abraham one time, he asked him, he says, is there anything too difficult for me? And and it was a rhetorical question. The answer was an obvious no. He cares about all that we care about. And so he wants to guide us and encourage us and especially to tell us about his great love for us. Jesus also said that the heathen people thought that they would be heard for their many words. But the length of our prayers doesn't matter at all either. You know, God isn't more likely to answer our prayers because it's long and elaborate. What God is looking for, again, is sincerity of heart. Spurgeon once said, Christians' prayers are measured by weight and not by length. Many of the most prevailing prayers have been as short as they were strong. You know, I can remember in my own prayer life, um, there have been times when I have been just so overwhelmed by different things that my prayer consisted of one word, Father. That's all I could get out. Father. And yet in that one word, I know that God knew the fullness and the cry of my heart. He knew everything. Proverbs 15.8 says, The prayer of the upright is his delight. And finally, when we pray, we need to remember that we are not giving God any news. Okay? For the scriptures tell us that he already knows the things that we have need of before we ask him. But like a good parent, he delights in having us spend time with him. He wants to hear us tell him in our own words of our joys and of our concerns and our needs. 
So this brings us to the third part of our study in which Jesus will address the model for prayer in verses 9 to 13. So Jesus not only talked about his, to his disciples about prayer, but he gave them a model to follow in praying. And we know that this is a model for prayer because Jesus said, in this manner, therefore, pray. In other words, this is how you should pray. This is what you should include in your prayers. And he proceeded to give them six petitions to include in their prayers. The first three are going to deal with petitions in relation to God. And the last three are going to be petitions regarding our own needs and concerns. So, first of all, uh, he told them that they were to address their prayers to the Father. Notice in verse 9 that the first thing Jesus does is teach his disciples to address their prayers to our Father who art in heaven. You know, when Jesus prayed, he always directed his prayers to his Father. And by directing our prayers to the Father, we're acknowledging that because we follow Jesus, we have a privileged and personal relationship with the Father. We are his daughter. Notice that it's in the plural also, our Father. This shows that as Christians, we are part of the family of God. Paul tells us in Galatians 4, 4 to 6, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And daughters is included there. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Jesus himself acknowledged this privileged relationship with the Father in John twenty seventeen, when he told Mary Magdalene uh, after his resurrection, do not cling to me, but go to my brethren and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. You know, when we pray, we're to acknowledge our relationship to God as our Father. Jesus also made it a point to note that our Father was in heaven. And this serves to remind us of God's holiness and glory in his special dwelling place. Next, in verse 9, Jesus, in the first petition relating to God, teaches his disciples that prayer should include worship. And so he says, hallowed be your name. And the word hallowed means to render or to pronounce as holy. So the petition here is, let God's name be celebrated and venerated and esteemed as holy. You know, we should begin our prayers by acknowledging who God is and by uh, praising him for his attributes and his characteristics. We acknowledge his eternal greatness and we declare his depend- our dependence upon him. And it's interesting to note here that the Pharisees made their own name and their own reputation the chief end of their prayers when they wanted to be seen by men. You know, their focus wasn't to hallow God's name, but we are to do that. We're also to hallow God's name in our words and in our conversations, in our service. You know, whatever we do, we do for God's glory. We don't do it for our glory. And we also should hallow him in our thoughts. 
Psalm 100, verse 4 says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful to him and bless his name. King David prayed in 1 Chronicles 16:29, Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. O worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. In verse 10, we see the second petition relating to God, where Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for God's kingdom to come. You know, most Jews don't believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah because they believe, among other things, that the Messiah would be a warrior king who would come and destroy all their enemies and bring them peace. And Jesus, in his first coming, didn't do this because he came as Savior and Redeemer. But he will come as a warrior king in his second coming at the Battle of Armageddon. And uh, for more information on this, you can see Revelations chapters 19 and 20 or Daniel chapters 2 and 7. And after Jesus wipes out all of Israel's enemies, he's going to establish his kingdom here on earth for a thousand years. And he's going to reign there as king. And it's for this second coming that we pray, come, Lord Jesus. It's that second coming that we're waiting for. But in the meantime, we can pray that Jesus' kingdom would reign in our minds and in our hearts. We can pray that we can continue to put his word into our mind, to allow it to transform our behavior, to allow it to control our emotions, to allow Jesus to rule in our lives as king and as Lord. In verse 10, Again, in the third petition relating to God, Jesus teaches his disciples to pray for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. You know, in heaven, there is no disobedience and there's no obstacles to God's will. But on earth, there is. So Jesus says that we're to pray for God's will to be done as freely on earth as it is in heaven. And we need to pray for God's will to be done because God's will is just so much better than our will. You know, his will comes from his love and his wisdom, where man's will often comes from our selfishness and our greed. In Psalm 67, 1 and 2, the psalmist prayed, God be merciful to us and bless us and cause his face to shine upon us, that your way may be known on earth your salvation among all the nations. In Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9, God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Jesus' model prayer thus far shows us that our prayers should begin with God's interests first, God's name, God's kingdom, God's will. Someone once said, prayer is a mighty instrument, not for getting man's will done in heaven, but for getting God's will done on earth. And once we put God's concerns first, then we can bring to him our own needs. And so we need to ask ourselves, do I go to God in prayer and just bombard him with a bunch of requests? I need this, I need that, she needs this, she needs that. 
Or do I take the time to praise him and thank him first uh, above all things for all that he is? You know, he's our mighty God. He's our comforter, our healer, our provider, our sustainer, our protector. You know, do I take the time to praise and thank him for all that he has done and all that he continues to do on a daily basis in our life? Do I take the time to listen to his voice speaking to me through the scriptures? You know, we need to remember that prayer is not just a one-way conversation. It is two ways, but we have to listen. In verse 11 is found the first petition relating to our needs, where Jesus taught his disciples to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And this petition refers to our daily provisions that we need to live, food, shelter, clothes, work. You know, we're to bring our needs before the Lord daily. I found it interesting that Matthew Henry, in his uh, commentary on this particular verse, had made some uh, observations, and I'll share them with you. He said, Jesus says, give, not sell it to us, not lend it to us, but give it to us. The greatest of men must be beholden to the mercy of God to give us our daily bread. Jesus said, us. When we pray, give us, we're praying for daily provisions, not only for ourselves, but for others. And praying like this teaches us to have charity, to have compassionate concern for the poor and the needy. Jesus says this day, and this reminds us that as the needs of our bodies are renewed daily, so is our desire for God needed every single day. Jesus says our bread Praying for our bread reminds us that we do not pray for the bread of others, but just what he has for me today. Jesus says daily bread. We pray for today's needs, what is sufficient for today, not for tomorrow's needs, because he'll take care of that tomorrow. We depend upon the Lord daily for sustenance and to have our needs met. And Jesus says bread. We pray for nourishment for our bodies, which is wholesome and enough to satisfy our hunger. We don't want to be overflowing, okay? Just what we need. Just what we need. And I I thought about this, and I was like, wow, all this in that one little verse. It, It made me reflect. In verse 12 is the second petition relating to our needs. And forgive us our debts. As we forgive our debtors, you know, forgiveness was so very important to Jesus. And uh, it was a common theme in, a, in his ministry and in his teaching. And he wants us to understand that because God has forgiven us so much, you know, we do not have the right to withhold forgiveness from another. And we really need to notice that this verse is asking God to forgive us our debts As we forgive. So if we're withholding forgiveness from another, we're asking God not to forgive us. You know, the parable of the ungrateful servant, which is found in Matthew 18, verses 21 to 35, confirms this. 
you know, unfortunately, we don't have time to go into it tonight, but I encourage you to read it, reflect on it, pray over it. And I want to encourage, if there's anyone here tonight who may be withholding forgiveness from someone else for whatever reason, I would encourage you, go to the Lord. Ask him to give you the humility and the ability to forgive that person or persons. You know, forgiveness is not an option for the Christian. It is a command. And refusal to forgive another can lead to pride and a bitter heart. And that can lead to a hard heart. And that could lead us to walk away from the Lord. You know, forgiveness frees us from the bondage of uh, anger and bitterness. And it allows us to walk freely in joy and peace with the Lord. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also forgave you. In the first part of verse 13 is the final petition relating to our needs. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. We need to know that praying lead us not into temptation does not mean that God tempts his children. James 1, uh, verses 13 to 14 says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. You know, we need to pray, asking God to guide us so that we will not get out of his will and get involved in a situation where we will get tempted. We also need to pray that God would deliver us from the wiles of Satan, whom 1 Peter 5.8 says, walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The last part of verse 13 is known as David's doxology. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Now, a doxology is a saying of praise or thanksgiving. And this second part of verse 13 is called David's doxology because it's very similar to a prayer of praise and thanksgiving, which David gave in First Chronicles 29, 11. Uh, in that uh, particular passage, David praises God by saying, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness, the power, and the glory, the victory, and the majesty. For all that is in heaven and in earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head over all. You know, it's interesting to note that Jesus' model prayer begins with prayer, I mean, begins with praise, and it ends with praise. And when you think about it, God is the beginning and the end of all things. So it's appropriate that our prayer should begin with praising God and thanking him and end in the same way. And the doxology ends with amen, which means so be it. In other words, I agree with everything that has been said in the prayer. And this brings us to the last very brief study in which Jesus addresses once again the mandate of forgiveness. Verses 14 and 15 say, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. 
But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. So here, once again, Jesus addresses the command to forgive. And he makes the command here very straightforward, very clear. There's no question about what he's saying. And the fact that he brings it up again means that he wants his disciples to really get this important lesson. You know, forgiveness is a matter of fellowship. And when we refuse to forgive someone, we break fellowship with them. And broken fellowship affects many people. It affects the one not forgiven. It, for, it affects the one who's refusing to forgive. It affects family members, friends, co-workers, the church, and so many others. Also, unforgiveness is a sin because it's disobedience to what God or Jesus has clearly commanded. And we know that the Bible says that sin hinders our prayers. Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. So I want to encourage you again with the words of Paul to the Colossians. In Colossians 3, verses 12 and 13, he says, Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. In tonight's lesson, Jesus teaches us much about how to pray. And he also provides uh, important instructions regarding forgiveness. And I just want to end by giving you four things to remember regarding prayer. First, prayer is a gift God has given even to the weakest of his children. Second, God's door is open 24-7 and there are no time limits. Third, you don't have to make an appointment or call in advance. Just show up. And fourth, prayer is not to be a work or a task or a duty or a burden or an obligation. But rather, we should see prayer as the most joyous privilege in the world. Let's pray. Father, we just come before you, Lord, in Jesus' mighty name and Father, we thank you for this study, and we thank you for how you teach us how to pray. And I just ask, Lord, that you would help us to put into practice uh, these lessons that we've learned, Lord. Help us especially to forgive, to be obedient in this area. And I just pray for anyone here, Lord, tonight who is struggling with unforgiveness, that you would just speak to their hearts, Lord, that you would give them the courage and the humility to be able to forgive, Lord. And I pray for every lady who's here, Father, that you would give her traveling mercies as she goes home. And I just pray that you would continue to be with us and continue to teach us about prayer this year, Lord. So I thank you, Father, and I just praise you, and I give you all the thanks for the work you're about to do in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.